Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful listeners. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about high functioning anxiety. My guest today is Dr. Ellen Wong. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, this is a topic that like, like, I mean, I know anxiety, but like what's high functioning anxiety. So I think this is like an important discussion to have because there's probably people experiencing things that they don't even know that they're experiencing. So, uh, but before we like dive into all of that, maybe you could tell us a little bit, you know, about you. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, so I'm a naturopathic doctor um, and the founder of a personal development center called the Joy Avenue. And I kind of dedicated a lot of my last like five, six years or so of my career to really understanding this thing called high functioning anxiety. And what led me to that point was a whole bunch of little check and things along the way where I started to realize that I didn't really fit the exact criteria of anxiety. And, you know, like as a naturopathic doctor, we're we're trained to use the resources in terms of how to evaluate um, anxiety. And I, I knew that I didn't really fit in. And really the biggest tipping points were kind of two hospitalizations that were related to burnout symptoms um, was when I really realized that something was not quite right and I needed to address it. And what I ended up doing was kind of a deep dive into all sorts of different things. And I stumbled upon um, this one article um, about high functioning anxiety. And from there, I realized that I understood why um, I didn't fit the typical anxiety diagnosis, what was missing in the way that I was handling a lot of the things that I was feeling. Um, And that kind of led me into now uh, combining kind of my clinical expertise, my love for women's psychology, um, and just actually a lot of concepts about happiness And sometimes I feel like people think it's a bit of a jump, but ultimately I think almost anybody you ask, no matter what their goals are, whether it's to feel calmer, to feel healthier, to reach this goal, that goal, the one step beyond that is because they, they want to experience more happiness in their life. And so I've combined all of those things, um, and then really made it a mission for me to help women, especially those with high functioning anxiety, be able to prioritize their health and happiness as much as their success. Amazing. Let's, let's get into like, what, what is like, what is high functioning anxiety? How is that different from like, generalized anxiety? So like, what were the things that like, weren't fitting? Let's chat about that. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing that is the outlier for people with high functioning anxiety is this one question on many, many different types of anxiety questionnaires. So there's a lot of symptoms that are similar. There is, however, one question that is embedded into the questionnaires in different formats, but ultimately what it's asking for is, does your anxiety symptom interfere with your day-to-day function? Now, day-to-day function in these particular questionnaires often refers to two things and why it's only these two things is a whole other conversation but the two things it typically refers to is your ability to seek help 
can you access, like, can, do you understand how to access help? And two, does it interfere with your work? That in, in, in a nutshell is called something, it's something called functional impairment which if you ask me is actually a horrible term um, because it makes you feel like you're not functioning um, when you kind of look at impairment in, in function. But again, another story altogether is that if you have high functioning anxiety, you clearly don't have functional impairment. You are not impaired in the way you function in any way, shape or form because your typical person with high functioning anxiety is the person that pushes through no matter how they are feeling. They are your type A personalities. They are your overachievers. And on the outside, everybody else who looks at them would think they are completely put together. They're confident, they're successful, they're calm, all of those things. But internally, these women, and I, I say women because it's often women that have high functioning anxiety, are struggling internally. What are they struggling with? And this is kind of the the biggest chunk of the high functioning anxiety with respect to like a quote unquote definition um, would be the negative self-talk. There is a lot of self-doubt, a lot of what ifs, a lot of overthinking, a lot of second guessing, difficulty saying no, people pleasing. And because of all of these, they are often mentally exhausted, which eventually leads to physical exhaustion. But if you ask these women, could they go out for a walk? Yeah, they physically are okay. They are mentally exhausted because their mind hasn't stopped in who knows how long. And that is the biggest difference is that anxiety often, typical generalized anxiety causes people to freeze and not do something. People with high functioning anxiety, their anxiousness drives them forward to do more and to be more, which makes them very high risk of burning out. Okay. And thank you for that sort of distinction, because as you're saying it, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, you know, like in high stress situations, I mean, you can have a fight or flight response, or you can have a freeze response when the sensations, when the stress becomes overwhelming. And what you're saying in this case, the nerve, like, our nervous system response is not likely to go into freeze, but actually into more action, which is kind of what the sympathetic system does is it puts us into action that we can tolerate, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. To keep, 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 keep going. But mm -hmm. that's not a good state to be in all the time. No, 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 exactly. And so what ends up happening is these people, it'll start creeping into, into people's lives. And one of the first, um, symptoms if you will like quote unquote because high functioning anxiety isn't a, isn't a technical medical condition like you will not find it in a book of diagnosis it's not it, it doesn't get grouped in and again i think that's actually one of possibly the problems is because you don't have that functional impairment therefore you don't have anxiety therefore you don't get the same kind of treatment and so these women will tend to just keep pushing because that's the only thing they know necessarily how to do right so what ends up happening in one of the first symptoms that this woman feel is, is um, having a really hard time relaxing. So even in the moments that they are supposed to be spending time with their loved ones and connecting and, and downtime at home after work, they don't have downtime. Like physically they're there, but mentally they're not because their mind is running through their day. And the, what if I, this person thinks this of me, should I have said this instead? I probably need to do this tomorrow. And oh gosh, this person looked at me this certain way. So I wonder if that's what they think. And when I answered this question in the meeting or when I did this presentation or you know, when I recorded this video, should I have said this? How do I look? And there's just, it's nonstop. It's a ton of overthinking and overanalyzing everything. And it's so autopilot for them to engage in these kind of thought patterns that it doesn't matter if they're sitting down and having dinner with their family or their best friend, it doesn't actually matter. They are often semi-engaged in the conversation and in the moment, but their mind is still ruminating and thinking about a whole bunch of things, whether it's, you know, what happened today, yesterday, or what's going to happen tomorrow. So it makes it really difficult to relax. And that is also why these women often struggle um, with things like journaling or meditating because those activities, which are great for stress management, 
feel very difficult when your mind is going so fast and in so many directions that you're not able to actually be present in the activity. And so it's this kind of like rushing, unsettled feeling all the time um, that causes them to have a lot of physical symptoms like difficulty falling asleep or having poor quality sleep. And um, actually one of the most common ones I see is actually digestive dysfunction because you're constantly, like you said, your sympathetic system is all revved up. You, it, and we need our parasympathetic to rest and digest, right? And so if your, your sympathetic system is always revved, you can't kick in the parasympathetic that helps you digest the food. And so these people have a lot of digestive discomfort um, and they can't rest. So they have a lot of issues with resting and sleeping and downtime. Yeah. I, w- I was thinking about the sleeping bed. I was thinking about intimacy. I was thinking about all the things that kind of require you to be present and like still and um, yeah. That's mm-hmm. kind of a big, that's a bit of a problem. Now, what's driving this? Like, cause we're talking about sympathetic nervous system and I, you know, I'm, I'm like all polyvagal theory uh-huh. geek over here and, <laughs> you know, studying, su- studying the central nervous system and its responses is like my passion as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering, is it <clears throat> like, is there an actual, is it the physiology that's driving the high functioning anxiety or is it the thoughts is it the mind driving it is it the body or is it both i actually think they get into this loop where they can't get out of it that involves both the mind and the physiology so if you think about it i i think the very 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 root is the the mind it's the the the, the stories and the things that you tell yourself even if they're so autopilot that you don't recognize that's what you're saying to yourself, that triggers the physiological response. Now that happens once or twice, you'll be able to get out of that cycle and kick in the parasympathetic, right? You'll be able to calm down. But if the mind drives the physiology, like your body changes, and then that feeling of the heart racing or the muscles clenching, unable to relax, or, you know, all of those things then make you go back and think a little bit more even, and that causes even more physiological changes. Now you are stuck in this massive loop, and it just keeps going and going and churning and churning faster and faster. It takes consistent, um, not effort, consistent isn't even the right word. It takes something strong enough to cut that cycle so that you can let your sympathetic system calm down a bit, give yourself, your parasympathetic, a chance to come back up so that you can actually rest and relax and do all of those things. And so it's interesting. It's kind of a, where do you then cut the cycle first? Is it, do you cut it at the physiological and do you, or do you cut it at the mental, um, the, the mind and, and self-talk? And I, I think that's a very individual decision. It really depends on the person and where they are and also what feels doable. Because sometimes when you are in that churning state and you're like stuck in that loop of not being able to rest, but then thinking about all the things and then trying to rest and then criticizing yourself for not being able to rest. And then why does meditation work for everyone else but me? And then you just kind of keep going and going and going. Sometimes the way to approach cutting that cycle is whatever that person is most ready to do. And there's all sorts of different ways that you can cut the cycle. It's just a matter of figuring out then which one might be the easiest. Mm. That's, that's the trick. I, you know, I, I usually reflect on it as like trying to put a spoke in the wheel, right? Like we have to, like, you know, we got to kind of, it has to be something kind of, you have to, you have to interrupt it somehow with (laughs) something, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I I wanted to, I guess the reason I'm sort of asking about it is because, you know, I would assume that like, if somebody, if, if this is sound, like, if this is sounding like something you have some, I want, like, my concern is some people might think there's, there's something wrong with them. Mm. 
<laughs> and so that's why I asked, like, is it the physiology? Is it the mind? Is it both? Like, is there technically something wrong that causes this to happen? Mm -hmm. Or is, is it a set of circumstances or a set of like subconscious beliefs? Like, mm -hmm. is it, you know, and is it changeable? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a really great question. Okay. So uh, this is kind of where I geek out a little bit about the whole thing. I, I, first of all, there's nothing wrong with you. Second of all, is nothing you did. So those are like the two, two biggest things. Yeah. I really, really do believe. So one of the things that I, I do is actually use a particular methodology, which, you know, we can get into later, but the, the, the theory behind this method is that there is something called emotional epigenetics. So epigenetics is the, the, um, theory, belief, something study <laughs> of study of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, um, traits get passed on from generation to generation. Now we used to believe that tr only physical traits got passed on. Um, blue eyes, brown eyes. Um, can you curl your tongue? Yes or no. Do you have, are you, you know, tall, short, whatever. doesn't really matter. Physical traits get passed on um, from, from generation to generation. What we've learned over the years is that their um, emotional responses and stressors that is experienced by someone, let's say your grandmother, get get encoded into their DNA as well. That change and modification gets passed on from generation to generation. It doesn't necessarily mean a mental condition gets passed on from generation to generation. That's not what I'm saying. However, what I think gets passed on is the susceptibility to certain things. And then... So let's say one person has a susceptibility to um, uh, what's a really good, what's a good example to use? So let's say in our one, your grandmother's um, situation, oh, actually, this is a really common one. You were taught that women were not supposed to work. Your job was to take care of the family and the kids and the husband. Kind of like you know, from several generations ago, this is maybe what people thought. And then that thought about making sure that everybody gets taken care of first gets passed on to your mom. Now, by potentially your mom's generation, women came out into the work field. And so now it's work and family and partner comes first before mom. And so when you were born, what you saw, it wasn't like she taught you that necessarily, but what you saw was that a woman quote unquote was supposed to put everyone else first, except for her, herself. So herself, like her self-care came last. Okay. Then that gets passed on to you. There's a susceptibility from your epigenetics that you were, you are, under a particular stressor because you are supposed to put everybody else first and you are supposed to put yourself last. You have a susceptibility to it because it was kind of passed on and also because you watched it get mirrored every day. Now, some kind of trigger happens typically in childhood where as a child, you may have chosen to do something for yourself, whatever that is, instead of your siblings or your parents, then you were taught you shouldn't do that. You need to be good and take care of everybody else first. It could be any of those any of those particular triggers. And now that trigger kind of flips on that switch and from an emotional epigenetics perspective and suddenly you are a bad person if you put yourself first mm. because you didn't put, yeah, because you were supposed to put everybody else first. And because you put yourself first, you were a bad person because you're in your grandmother's time, they, they, a woman was good and they did their job if they stayed at home and took care of their family and their husband. So you kind of inherit these kind of thought patterns. Mm. They just show up differently because our situations change and society changes, right? And so now perhaps on some level, like women may still feel like they need to often put other people first. It may not necessarily be in that traditional setting anymore. It may not play out as like, you know, like a typical traditional household with a partner and some ki and kids. It may not play out like that. 
that need to take care of everybody else first might actually come out in a place of work where you say yes to all the things that you are asked to do because you are taking care of everybody else's needs and you're not standing up for yourself and being able to say, you've actually put too much on my plate now, this is too much workload. Or you've put too much on my plate, you're not giving me enough resources to take care of this job. Or I need a pay raise if you want me to continue to expand outside of my scope of work. So mm. it ends up playing out in a whole bunch of different areas, but but the whole basic basic root thought around that was that I, I am a good person if I put other people first. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's easy to see that these, these patterns would get handed down because, you know, when we're children, well, we're watching and observing what's happening around Mm -hmm. us. And we're taking that in while we're also being influenced by our current culture. Mm -hmm. And then, so now it's almost like there's, there can also be opposing mm-hmm. sides, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have this handed down belief and this new cultural norm where it's a tug of war, where now it's like, am I good? No, I'm bad. I'm good. Now I'm bad. Mm-hmm. Now I'm good. Now I'm bad. Mm-hmm. And I can see how that internal struggle mm-hmm. in the mind, you know, becomes a challenge. And then it gets acted out in our mm-hmm. physio- you know, in our physiology. Absolutely. And that exact struggle you are sharing that like the external and the internal that triggers feelings of guilt and sometimes shame and sometimes anger and sometimes resentment. And all of each of those emotions also trigger our physiology to release certain chemicals and your body to behave a certain way. And now we are now caught in the cycle. Um, I also, while you were sort of talking about the epigen, like emotional epigenetics, I'm also thinking about, um, you know, if my mom was having those, that, that kind of internal dialogue of like, I should, but I also want to do this because this is what I'm passionate about, but you know, society wants me to do this. And as she's struggling with her own internal messaging, that's releasing certain chemicals, I'm also in utero, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'm also thinking that as her body is processing those stressors, those hormones, those um, different chemicals, well, that's going to be passing through the placenta, which I would think that my nervous system as a developing baby is going to pick up on those chemicals. And therefore, I'm going to be able to more susceptible or, or I'm just going to, I'm going to see a patterning, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah. One step further. It's you and your children because you were born with all of your, like your mom carried your children. That's right. Because you were born with your eggs already formed. So technically it's two generations. Okay. Makes makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you could I can see how both on a thought process level, how mm-hmm. that gets handed down through observation, through being told this is how you're supposed mm-hmm. to do it, right? Because we we learn from our mm-hmm. parents, right? Like mm-hmm. their job is to make sure that like they raise us, right? Mm-hmm. So um but then you, I I was also thinking of it from that physiological mm-hmm. level as well. So you kind of mm-hmm. get the both. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um I want to find out what like can you speak to kind of what happens if this goes unchecked like somebody's doing all of these things like what are the cons what are the long term mm-hmm. are there consequences like mm-hmm. of not dealing with it or not recognizing it like mm-hmm. so there's so many layers actually to that question i think the most ob- two endpoints, if we can call them that, would be, you know, full-blown anxiety panic attacks. Because at some point you're going, your your compensation method, which is to keep going, is going to eventually break that you cannot keep going. And typically then you end up with full-blown anxiety or burnout. I also think not recognizing that high-functioning anxiety is different than generalized anxiety means you may end up trying to use methods that don't necessarily help in the long run. So a prime example of this is for those who um, 
use anti-anxiety medications. And I'm not here to say don't use medications because when I was going through everything that I was going through, I had my anti-anxiety, like anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications. And they help um, to a certain extent. And I think, I think on some level, the medications will help because they stop you from feeling the physical symptoms. Mm. But what no, like there is no pill in the world. And for that matter, whether that pill is a pharmaceutical pill or a natural pill, or even like a diet that will change the way you think. And if high functioning anxiety has a lot to do with the thought patterns and how you're thinking and the negative self-talk and the what ifs and all that kind of stuff, if you don't address it on that level, then you will potentially take a particular medication, natural or otherwise, maybe eat a certain way, live a certain lifestyle, and you'll still feel like something is just missing because you still haven't addressed the way you're thinking. So can you take the medications and feel better? A hundred percent. And again, I'm not saying don't take medications. Absolutely take them if you need to take them. I would say though, take when you're ready, take it one step further, right? Like take the medication so that you feel good and change your diet, change your lifestyle. So you feel healthy and you feel good. And it's actually part of the reset too, right? Like you're, you're that exactly what you said about poking the spoke in the wheel. It's like kind of putting something in there so that you stop that cycle, when you feel ready to take it that one step further and work on those thoughts, because those thoughts are the things that trigger the way you feel. Now you've dealt with the feeling in terms of like a physiological perspective. Now let's talk about the mental emotional stuff and let's make sure we get that addressed as well. And I think that is probably that kind of two pronged approach is probably the best, most comprehensive way to address high functioning anxiety. What, because I mean, there's definitely like, there's people who, who certainly don't want medication and that's like, that's one, you know, one thought, but like, if somebody's experiencing this, like high functioning anxiety, um, are there barriers to getting treatment or like, are there barriers to seeking help with with this aside from the like I don't do medication part like that's obviously one barrier you know people have beliefs around medications Mm -hmm. but like are there other things that sort of I mean obviously if you're not aware that you have it or or that that it's you know a thing that can be dealt with then obviously that's a barrier right Mm -hmm. knowledge Mm -hmm. is knowledge is power Mm -hmm. but aside from that like are there any other barriers to like women wanting to address this like I think one of the things to bring up to whoever it is that you are seeking care from is that just because you don't have that quote unquote definition of functional impairment, it doesn't mean the quality of life isn't suffering, like your quality of life isn't suffering. And so when I went through my own journey through this, I remember my doctor kind of um, being hesitant to give me medication because I was still going to work. Like I was still working fine. I was actually excelling at what I was doing. So in his opinion, he was like, well, like you don't, like you have kind of anxiety, but you don't really have anxiety because you're going to work okay. So so just remember to wherever you are seeking care, advocate for yourself, like speak up and tell whoever it is that's taking care of you that you want to explore different options and, you know, whatever it is that you're open to, whether it is medication, if that's, you know, your, your medical doctor, if you're seeing an alternative healthcare practitioner, be open if you are to whatever it is that they recommend within their scope. And then also bring up the fact that you need some help with those negative thought patterns. I think the other thing is that not everybody may be fully aware of those negative thought patterns and what they are. And do you have a negative thought pattern? So I would say some of the most common ones that we don't always recognize, but is ultimately driving a lot of this is um, definitely if you spend a lot of time in the what if realm, 
what if this happened? What if this happened? What if this person, what if, what if a lot of what ifs? Um, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'll never be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those are some really, really common ones. Or even if it's like, I'm worried about what so-and-so think um, of me. Um, a common one is, is um, fear of fear of failure. Um, I'm afraid of failing is actually a negative thought pattern because ultimately if you ask people who are afraid of failure, and this isn't a hundred percent of the time, but a lot of the times it's still related to, I'm afraid of what people think of me. They are not afraid of failing because of themselves. They are afraid of failing because they're worried what other people will think of them if they, they fail. Mm. right and if you're constantly worried about what other people think of you then I think one layer behind that is still I'm not good enough because you're worried about what other people are saying about you because you don't feel confident in who who you are what you stand for your own journey what you're doing the choices you're making the decisions you're making where does all of this come from? Like, I'm just sitting and I'm like, you know, cause I hear, I hear a lot of myself here. I hear a lot of other women that I interact with, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially, you know, women who are entrepreneurs or mm-hmm. go get, you know, like you, you, there's, cause you know, we need a lot of drive and we mm-hmm. need to do certain things to hit certain successes that we, you know, mm-hmm. perceive as, um, mm-hmm. bringing us that joy and, and happiness. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where, because there seems to be more than just like a couple people that have this, like, I can think of like a few people who I could be like, mm, I wonder. Right. So it seems to be like a, a, a big thing. Like where mm-hmm. did we collectively pick this up? You know, like, it, it, I just, I just really wonder like, culture society mm. media like yes you have the individual mm-hmm. right handing down from family but i just i feel like this is more pervasive mm-hmm. like the negative self-talk piece is like i think the numbers are probably significantly high especially <laughs> among women yes, um, and especially among women i don't want to just limit it to entrepreneurs but i do think that there is a unique amount of fail potential failing points if you're an entrepreneur Mm. um I I find and again I I kind of can speak to this because you know half of my time is being an entrepreneur the other half of my time is in a in a in a kind of typical not typical but like in a in a in an organization where you know I have working hours and and like more salary based um and uh you know specific outcomes I have to deliver from that perspective and I I will, I will say that as an entrepreneur, I am faced with the potential of failure yeah. way more. Um, and again, that's an, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. You know, yeah. like, why is that? Like, why is that we are faced with this situation way more? I, but you know, what are you going to say? I was going to say, I'm not sure that there's like, maybe like, I, I'm sure it's a multi multifaceted, um, you know, a multifaceted generational societal thing, cultural thing that's been yeah, like yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. sort of yeah. handed down where we collectively, you know, are trying to be equal to men. And, you know, like there's all sorts oh, of yes. Stuff. Like if we're gonna go down that path, then I think for sure we have as women, we now are expected, are expected being meaning we put it on ourselves, but also society tells us because of all the images we get inundated with all the time, that not only are we supposed to be the nurturing person that is supportive of our family and our loved ones and the ones taking care of that, but on top of it, we're supposed to be the strong career woman and excel at work regardless of what work and what line of work you've picked. And even so if it's, if it's a, your, your nine to five, you know, work organization company kind of job then you're supposed to excel you're supposed to keep getting promoted you're supposed to deliver all of your deliverables on time meet all your deadlines 
blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And then if you're an entrepreneur, you're supposed to be like, oh, building this dream business and giving your family the freedom that comes with, you know, being in an entrepreneurial position or all those kind of things. And somewhere in there, we are also supposed to take care of everything in our family. Now, some of that is actually probably biological. We are, after all, the ones that grow a child and birth a child. I don't, you know, yeah. That's kind of on. There, on there's a bio- on, yeah, a biological susceptibility yes. from the sense of like we are, yeah, like yeah. We, our hormones may drive some yes. of this. Yes, like some you, of this. for sure. Oh, for sure. Like if you have given birth, for the most part, you are now hormonally driven to feel certain emotions, to feel connected to your child in a certain way, to feel in, um, intuitive about your child in a certain way. Like there's all sorts of things that come with that from a biological and hormonal perspective. But aside from that, I think like, I mean, like we're lucky in Canada for them, like for a lot of people who do have the salary position, you have paid mat leave that is some like for the most part allows for some recovery um, of the birthing process think about all the places in the world where they aren't as you know um lucky if that's the right word to use but like where your mat leave is like what four weeks six weeks I remember what I was like six weeks after giving birth and I was not ready to go back to work and I just like I think like that's again like it's actually kind of ridiculous that it takes you nine months to grow a child, the marathon of giving birth and recovering from that, and then being told you're supposed to breastfeed because that's best. And that is a whole other set of emotions and physiological changes. And then somehow in six weeks, you are ready to go right back to work. It, like, why is your recovery six weeks? Yeah. If it took nine months to do this process, if you like, like, it's just, it's, and I think that in and of itself is a message of dust that off. You've completed that task. Go back to doing the things that you're supposed to do and performing in all the things that you're supposed to be performing. Like, I think, I think that's ridiculous. Like there's so many, like how, what message are we sending women if they, even as simple as your first, if you don't use a midwife or other resources, your first check-in after giving birth is six weeks. By then, a lot of postpartum issues have creeped up. The first six weeks was the hardest thing. You don't know what you're doing really. It doesn't matter if you're trained medically. It doesn't matter if you have people around you. You were just given a life form that you were supposed to take care of. Talk about not feeling good enough. Talk about like, you're just like told that here, here you go. Take care of this life form that is entirely dependent on you. By the way, also don't sleep, recover, and then go back to work. And we actually only give you one postpartum. Um, visit six weeks in to check if you're okay like it's just what are we what message are we sending yeah women, right so and it makes so, sense where yeah, like where it comes from yeah I think so I think we're, we're given a lot even as much as if anybody here is on social media you know how much you get you see all the memes and all the quotes of like take care of yourself put yourself first self-care is not selfish like you see all of that but our systems in society aren't set in place to actually make and that certainly happen. not now no no on and top so, of it it's like now well you're gonna yes. work and yeah. you're gonna take care of your family yeah and you're gonna perform really well mm-hmm. and now you're gonna homeschool and yeah you're going to yada 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 yes and like, so like I don't and this is sometimes the thing that kind of frustrates me is that we we talk about self-care being important we talk about like there's again umpteen things you can read online and people you can follow and I think this is all good I'm not saying don't do it I'm saying it's all very good I'm saying collectively though like our society's systems often do not allow us to live out these things that we know are important, like downtime, like connection, like doing things for self-care so that you do feel grounded. And and how many organizations and teams that you work with help facilitate you to make you, help you, not make you, help you feel good enough, feel confident, feel self-worth? How many managers out there are trained to work with people to develop these skills? I would argue very little. 
Yeah. Very, very little. We reward people for working hard. We reward people for excelling. We reward people at work for putting themselves last. Because if you work those 80 hours, you get that promotion. Are yeah. we not reinforcing the high functioning anxiety thing? If you, you perform, you are a good person. If you perform, you are good enough. If you get that promotion, you are good enough. If you mm. don't, then you're not doing enough. If you're not working the 80 hours, you're not doing enough, right? Like we perpetually keep giving, like this is embedded in every single, there's so many aspects of how we reward people for, for hard work. Yeah. That I think it drives a lot of these feelings. And then the body crashes. Yes. Cause what option does it have? Like it's a vehicle and it can only go so far. You drain the gas and gonna break down you know you run that engine down it's gonna break down yeah yeah um and then you know and then sometimes we wonder where our problems and symptoms have sort of come from right Mm -hmm. um because we don't necessarily see those things Mm -hmm. like well they're not necessary i mean again the messaging is like you work hard and you're achieving and you're doing all these things so you're quote unquote successful Mm -hmm. on the outside by sort of the quote on and I'm putting air quotes because you know it's different for everybody but generally speaking like if somebody's looking at you and you have the nice house and you have the family and you mm-hmm. have the nice job and you have all the things that you're you know air quote happy and mm-hmm. that you've you're air quote successful yeah. right um so you don't necessarily see that those same things can also lead to other health problems mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. things can come crashing down fairly mm-hmm. quickly. So mm-hmm. I still think that you can have those things mm-hmm. and fit in that self-care piece, but it's it's learning how to navigate. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I do that? And how do I also bring mm-hmm. like a value proposition to address it? I think maybe some of the fear is like if I look at it and address it, then maybe I won't be successful. Oh, you nailed it. You've nailed it. And that's one of the biggest things I I see a lot with the people, the women that I work with. And, and oftentimes they'll ask like, well, what will happen if, like they consider their negative self-talk a form of motivation. I don't think I'm good enough. So if I keep working hard, then I'll, but then if I start thinking that I'm good enough, am I going to stop doing anything? Like, am I going to stop caring? And perfectionism is probably the one that I get this question the most of, which is like, my perfectionism has gotten me very far in life. So if I stop caring about being perfect, am I going to become lazy and sloppy? And my right. question, my, my answer to that is always, it's not a switch. It's not you turn off perfectionism and then suddenly you don't care, but everything is in shambles and you hand in a presentation that has, you know, six different fonts and 15 different colors in spelling errors. Like you're not going to do that. That is a very far far, far range from perfect. You, if you're somebody that cares about doing a job, you're always going to do a good job. If you're somebody who cares about what you do, you will always care about what you do. The difference though, is when you do have that negative self-talk driving the perfectionism, you're coming from a place of stress. You can do a good job. You can do a great job from a place of feeling confident and from a place of doing a good job because you care and you want to do a good job not because you're worried about delivering something that isn't perfect and what other people are going to think of you if you're not perfect that distinction is the the outcome may be the exact same the product you deliver may be the exact same the difference though is one person is calm confident and probably feeling pretty happy with their job And the other person is feeling stressed out, anxious, delivers their job, and probably still will spend the next two weeks being stressed out and anxious about what they've done. Right. I think that is a huge difference from a physiological health perspective. Okay. So the next big question everybody's wondering is, how do I go from that to that? Mm -hmm. What do do I do? Like, how do I, how do I, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. Absolute first thing is being very comfortable realizing how much negative self-talk we have. Okay. And, and, and being aware of it and not being afraid of it 
is actually the first step. Because if we're going to address the self-talk, you actually have to understand that you have the negative self-talk. And I don't want anybody to feel bad that they have negative self-talk. Every, I'm going to use women because I work with women, but like every single woman I've worked with in the last 10 years of my career have negative self-talk. And that is okay. We just talked a lot. We spent a lot of time talking about how society kind of almost reinforces it and you get some of it passed on to you, right? So everybody has negative self-talk. When I work with women and we kind of go through finding out and um, identifying all the negative self-talk, on average, I can highlight and, and pinpoint about 30 to 40 um, phrases, thought patterns that we have that would be considered negative self-talk. And so th- we have plenty of it. Then there's, again, lots of different ways that people can work on their negative self-talk. Um, there's plenty of you know different coaches and, and, and methodologies out there. The one that I use is something called Creatrix. So Creatrix is a, I would say a, a revolutionary way of dealing with mindset and negative self-talk, like positively dealing with it. Um, it's a process that is based on Um, emotional epigenetics and it is designed specifically and only for women and it's a process that is able to end your negative self-talk and limiting beliefs for good and I really like that as a matter of fact it's so effective that creatrix is the only mindset breakthrough process that will come with an outcome guarantee which means when we find that 20, 30, 40 thought patterns and negative self-talk phrases that you have um, that's per, like permeating in all different areas of your life, once we find all of those things, when we are done working together through the Creatrix Breakthrough, my guarantee is that that negative self-talk and limiting belief will never come back. And I love doing this for women because in working with them, they, every single woman I've come out with has been like, my life is, feels completely different. They feel so much calmer and open and happy. And probably the one that I actually hear the most is free. They suddenly feel extremely free of the weight that they've been carrying for a really, really long time because of their negative self-talk and limiting beliefs. So what does that, like, what does that look like? Like, can you kind of like highlight, like what, 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 what does a session look like? Is it a session? Is it a, is it like a, like, what is it? (laughs) Yeah. So um, it is, mm, it's a series of sessions. Okay. Um, there's a creatrix is a is an entire system and i don't want to say sometimes i hesitate to use the word system because it sounds like it's a very long process but it's really yeah. not and and typically when i start working with a woman we can wrap up the last session within a month um what it looks like is there's very specific exercises that i will guide somebody through that allows me to pinpoint all of the negative self-talk because we really want to draw it all out and then we go through as many sessions as it takes to clear that entire list from feeling very, very intense. I have, there's a rating scale that we use from feeling very intense and affecting so many areas of their life to kind of like, I don't really feel it anymore. That's not a phrase that even resonates with me. So I get that a lot with women. They'll say a particular phrase. And by the time we're done working together, they're like, I don't remember really that like I used to say this phrase like they're kind of like I know I used to say this phrase but like I have no emotional attachment to it it's just like reading words now like I don't actually feel anything I don't get triggered when I think of those things like none of that stuff is there anymore and it's really this kind of I think that's why it's so freeing I think it's because you like you just don't you don't really feel the weight of that negative self-talk anymore and again one of the really great things about creatrix and again why i love using it so much is that when i work with somebody i'm committed to clearing that entire list it can take us 10 sessions if we have to but i'm committed to getting you through that entire breakthrough it never takes 10 sessions but i will work with you for as many sessions as it takes to clear that entire list Mm. okay interesting um, 
where can people access that? Like, uh, what, what, like, is it a virtual thing? Like, mm-hmm. is it a virtual thing, mm-hmm. virtual sessions? Mm-hmm. Everything is done virtually. So I've worked with people from all over. Um, so yeah, everything is done virtually. And there's really not a lot that you need to do it. The most important thing, really, if I had to be very honest, is the readiness and the willingness to let it go. I think you negative self-talk is something that is so embedded in everything that we say and the lens with which we see the world. It is a big shift. And if you're going to resist that shift from the minute we start, we're not going to get very far. I have stopped working with people because, I mean, they come to the same realization. They're kind of like, I'm actually now aware that I'm not ready to make this change. And I fully respect that. Like it's like any other change you make to your lifestyle. You have to be like ready for that change in your life. Like quitting smoking, right? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like Like, it's a big change for people and it mm -hmm. requires some work and you have to be ready and willing in order. Ready and willing. Like I'm thinking like smoking cessation. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Ready and willing to, to, to let it go. You don't even, I don't even want to say do the work. Because you yeah. actually don't have to do very much work at all. Like, really, the work is on me. I do the work. But but ultimately, like, you have to be ready and willing to, to change your self-talk, the story you tell yourself every day, and the lens with which you see the world. And if you're ready, then creators is going to go super, super smoothly and very, very easy. Um, and so, but like you said, it is virtual. Um, I do everything through Zoom. Um, and, yeah, it, it doesn't it really just takes the willingness and the readiness to, to see that change and, and to want it for yourself. So if somebody's not ready to take mm-hmm. like on that big step, mm-hmm. do you have uh, like, can you tell, cause I know you have a thing. It's called <laughs> break, breaking up with your inner mean girl. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Like maybe like if you're not quite ready, like here's where you can start. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's, you can kind of like dip your toe in and like, check out what this is all about, yeah, you know, yeah, kind of for thing. Sure. I actually think you've actually set it up um, very well. And like all the listeners, we did not plant it like this, <laughs> but, but with um, thing. So, so I have a first step process, which is um, breaking up with your inner bully or breaking up with your inner mean girl, which is really just that negative self-talk. And it's 10 steps that get you aware Um Awareness is the first step. You don't have to say, I'm ready to jump in and make all the changes, but you need to be aware of what's going on and all the different areas of your life that might be contributing to it. So in these 10 steps, I actually talk a little bit about how like anger is real. Like you are way more susceptible to your inner bully or your inner mean girl. If you're not taking care of yourself from a physiological nourishing perspective, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not doing, you know, kind of the right um, things to take care of your yourself and your environment. And so it's, it's to me, it's more than just being like, go stick a post-it note on the mirror so that you say affirmations to yourself every day. As a matter of fact, I would argue that your inner mean girl hates affirmation. They don't work in the long term. And I'll tell you why. When women tell ourselves negative self-talk and we repeat it to ourselves over and over again in all sorts of variations, it gets attached to an emotion. So Mm. I'm not good enough may get attached to guilt, shame, fear, fear of failure, whatever it is. When you have that emotion, it's embedded quite deep within you, whether it's from a neurological brain perspective or physiological, because each time you get triggered to feel that fear, your body releases a whole ton of chemicals that reinforce that feeling of fear. So when you inherently feel the I'm not good enough and that triggers a feeling and you stick a post-it note in front of the mirror and you force yourself to say that post-it note over and over and over again, you're going to actually start feeling resentment and like even probably potentially more shame because you are seeing something to yourself that your body is recognizing as a lie. You cannot... You cannot, full, you cannot believe that you're not good enough and stare at yourself in the mirror and yell at yourself enough that I am good enough. I am good enough. I am good enough. Damn it. Like you actually can't do that enough to make yourself feel good enough. It, mm. like, it actually doesn't work that way. And the analogy that I give is, is planting a garden. Your negative self-talk is like all the weeds. 
I don't care how many beautiful flower seeds that I give in to you to plant in your garden, to water and all the instructions about the soil and the sun and the, all the kind. I don't even care if you have this fully automated, beautiful system. The fact of the matter is there's wheat there. You cannot plant enough flowers to get rid of weed. You actually have to pull the weed out. And so I, I, I actually think that if, if you, you need to be able to address it. You need to be able to like, be like, I acknowledge that I have the negative self-talk and I'm willing to do some steps. Now, do you need to like do the thing where like every little weed gets pulled out and you like, maybe not. And that's okay if that's not what you're interested in doing, but at least have the tools to start removing some of those weeds so that the flowers you do plant, which is all the positive things you want to say to yourself, all the positive experiences you want to have in your life, have the opportunity to grow. Okay. (laughs) Yes, it totally makes sense. And then looping back to, um, you got 10 steps that right, people sorry. can take. I, like, got, I, got, I got excited okay. about my analogies. So, <laughs> so yes. Um, so the 10 steps that help people um, break up with their negative self-talk. And these are 10 steps that you can repeat. Like they're not complicated 10 steps, but they are 10 steps that help you become aware and stop that negative self-talk cycle. If you're interested in diving into more detail in terms of like, well, in terms of like, Yes, I understand now that hanger is real. Yes, I understand that fueling my body is a part of um, helping me deal with my negative self-talk. And you want to know like, well, exactly what does that look like? Like, what is there a diet I'm supposed to follow? What kind of nutrition am I looking at? Visualization is important, but like what kind of visualization should I actually be doing to help me with my negative self-talk? Then I invite people to take it one step further. Um, So I have a six-week online program called Achieve Joy, and it's a a guide to... a guide for women who living who are living with high functioning anxiety. And so that's a six week program that you can do online. And it goes into the details Mm. of those 10 steps from the negative self-talk, like breaking up with your inner bully. Um, It'll dive into detail in those different areas about how to build supportive lifestyle habits that minimize and diminish that negative self-talk. And then for those people who are interested in taking it one step further, um, they can choose to see me as a naturopathic doctor if they're in Ontario. Um, Otherwise, they can contact me if they're interested in doing um, a Creatrix breakthrough session. Amazing. So where can people get the deets? Like where where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Where, Where are you? Where can they, you know, learn more? Mm, so following me on Instagram is your best bet. I do a lot of um, posting a lot of information about high functioning anxiety and all the related components to that. Um, so uh, my Instagram handle is at the joy Avenue um, in my LinkedIn bio. There's lots of different ways to get in touch with me, depending on what it is that you're interested in, or you can shoot me a DM on Instagram. I always reply. Awesome. And We'll post the links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So it makes it easy for people just to click and figure out where they, where they need to go and not worry about spelling and all of that stuff. So that'll be in the description of the podcast episode. I want to thank you so much for, you know, coming and talking. I'm sure there's so much more unraveling and things that we could, um, we could chat about in regards to this. I think, um, you know, I've certainly experienced moments of this in my moments of this in my life too. So I'm glad that we talked about it. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and having me. And I really enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah. And we hope that, you know, our listeners enjoyed the conversation today and we hope that you are subscribed to the podcast and uh, yeah, share out this episode because, you know, it's that thing on Instagram. You always see everybody's like best pictures and like best things. And like underneath there could be that silent suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. So you never know Mm -hmm. whose life you're going to impact by just like sharing a podcast episode and Mm -hmm. somebody being like, what is this about? And then it's like, Oh yeah, that kind of sounds like me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I didn't even know there was something I could do about Mm -hmm. it. So Mm -hmm. You know, consider sharing it out, consider subscribing, and we will connect with all of you on the next podcast. Bye for now. 
Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain And then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training, or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode At the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.